0: Welcome to this installment of Context Clues, where we share excerpts from past episodes to give you a more complete background on the topic at hand. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. When an early reality show called Jackass premiered on MTV in the year 2000, it smashed viewership records for the network and led to smashed shopping carts in department store parking lots across America. Suddenly, suburban tweens and teens started writing them violently into trimmed hedges and pushing each other out of them straight onto the cement, emulating the pranks and stunts performed by a group of nihilistic skateboarders and carnival-esque performers. Ones that sold them a vision of hilarious self-destruction that my 12-year-old self found to be pretty fun indeed. These guys brought gross-out humor to living rooms across the world. They brought public pranks that confused and even horrified the unsuspecting onlookers they caught on tape. And they brought incredibly stupid stunts that included everything from getting in the ring with an angry bull to jumping out of a tree to endure a bungee wedgie. Our upcoming series on Jackass is going to focus on how these guys came together to create this explosive franchise, the skate culture that facilitated their friendship, and the handful of serious copycat injuries that led to a moral panic about how the show was leading astray the youth of America. We'll also try to understand the impetus of Jackass by looking at the coming of age of those who starred in it, Gen X, and what caused their generation to be defined as nihilistic slackers whose greatest badge of honor was not giving a fuck. Back in the 90s, when we mercifully had no social media, there was still an economy that built itself off the personalities of an elite few—influencers who became famous for what was largely seen as a lazy, good-for-nothing pursuit—skateboarding. Jackass, as we'll see in our next episode, grew out of a transgressive skate culture— where brands put out videos of tricks interspersed with the stunts and pranks that would come to define the controversial show. Whereas jackass ringmaster Johnny Knoxville and co-star Steve-O gravitated towards skateboarding for the anarchic attitude it encapsulated— other future stars like Bam Margera and Jason Weeman Akuna started out as talented skaters first and foremost, becoming provocateurs as they got involved with a company called World Industries and its extremely controversial Big Brother magazine. Here is an excerpt from our episode called Influencers that will teach us more about this landmark company and the man who ran it, as well as the wild lives that young skateboarders were able to stumble into if they were willing to risk life and limb to become American superstars. Usually just means you get free skateboard equipment and uh, in turn you promote the company.
1: I don't know, I'm still trying to get sponsored, man. No one will pick me up. <laughs> Have you made a video? Dude, I've sent them everywhere, bro. I just, it's not working.
0: If kids today dream of growing up to be famous on social media, paid to take photos or videos of themselves doing whatever, Kids in my day dreamed of being paid to skateboard. Skateboarding has long been an anarchic, rebellious, boundary-pushing sport, though its appeal was in large part because it wasn't a sport, not really. It wasn't in the realm of after-school activities or competitive stress. It was more of an expressive art. It was a kind of freedom, it was a bond, it was an entire culture, and it belonged to the youth, their highest value being pure authenticity. The worst thing you could be called was a poser, which I was called, despite the fact that my middle school boyfriend broke up with me because I cared more about skateboarding than him. He was right. Skateboarding has been around since surfers invented it in the 40s and 50s, and it waxed and waned in popularity and style, getting big in the 70s as the youth culture was rejecting the corporate suburban world of their conformist parents. And then again, it rose from the ashes in the 1990s when a teenager named Rodney Mullen invented the Ollie and the Kickflip, spawning an entire new movement called Street Style. At this time, the major skate companies that were producing gear, most notably Powell Peralta, were participating in the kind of casual, discreet marketing that Edward Bernays certainly would have blessed. At the time, there was this coveted opportunity called getting sponsored, which meant free gear and travel to events, spots and skate videos, and eventually thousands of dollars a month. Those getting sponsored under Powell Peralta and the other major brands were often 12 to 18 years old, and they donned branded shirts, branded boards, and stickers to spread across skate parks and city walls, bathroom mirrors, and street signs. This kind of marketing is known as mass product seeding, sending free products to popular people, hoping that others will subconsciously link them to the brand so they can be like their favorite skater without their favorite skater seeming like a corporate sellout bitch. These kids weren't standing in front of a camera cheesily recommending brands like celebrities might. This was authentic marketing, grassroots word of mouth, which made it cool. But behind the scenes, the authenticity was not really a true value at Powell Peralta and skaters received a full binder of the behaviors they could and could not engage in. Instructions on how to pose for photos, how to act at competitions, how to dress, and how to talk. But skaters will be skaters, and the rebellion against the big guys came swiftly and without mercy in the mid-90s, when a 27-year-old skateboarder named Steve Rocco started his own gear company, World Industries, snaking away several of the most famous skateboarders that rode for Powell Peralta. At this time, if you weren't a top 15 skater, you weren't shit. But Rocco saw an opportunity to bring in ragtag punks, micro-influencers, who may not have had the best technical skill, but had the best personalities which in skate culture began to mean the most extreme. Cashing out all he could from his credit card, getting in with dangerous loan sharks and eventually a venture capitalist, Rocco blasted Powell Peralta as fake and phony, as corporate old news, as stuffy, where his new company was brash, a mess of anarchy and shock, with a magazine called Big Brother that would be considered deeply, deeply offensive today, full of the contrarian attitude that came on the heels of the anti-drug, satanic panic-soaked evangelical Reagan years. It was all about street style, kick flips and heel flips and grinding rails and creating new tricks and sharing your tricks with each other, spending hours trying to come up with something new, trying to perfect something your friend made up, passing it on again and again, kind of like a TikTok dance routine. See, I know what's going on. But Powell Peralta did not believe that this was going to catch on. No way. But it did. And suddenly, world industries exploded.
1: Well, here's something your children may be reading that you should definitely know about. It's a shocking magazine. It tells you how to commit suicide. It tells you all about drug use and also explicit descriptions of sex.
0: As you might imagine, this skater-owned company was not prepared to approach this level of success and the cash that followed. Rocco traveled with his crew of teenagers all over the country to competitions and shows, flooding them with money, sometimes 10 grand a week, with shopping sprees, five star hotels, and all the room service their little hearts desired. All they had to do was skate and make videos, be their authentic, offensive selves while sporting the company's gear and riding their boards, creating constant content through what is now called content marketing, growing a whole culture around the world industry's brand. Director Spike Jones would get his start filming skate videos of insane tricks and brutal falls, extreme pranks and the bong Olympics, anything subversive they could invent. It worked well because the videos were never overt with their marketing the brands were mentioned only casually in the opening and closing credits. Teenagers wanted to be associated with the brand because of these influencers, and to be like them, kids and teenagers didn't mind becoming little brand ambassadors themselves, trying to express their individuality by the brands and skaters they repped. Skateboarding would finally truly enter the mainstream when a group of young men began making videos under the name CKY or Camp Kill Yourself, most notably Bam Margira. The paragon of recklessness, Johnny Knoxville, would get his start in a Big Brother video shooting himself point-blank in the chest while wearing a bulletproof vest. And the success of that video led Spike Jones to MTV, Collaborating on a little show called Jackass that would take the youth culture by storm, creating an army of suburban skaters, launching each other into shrubs from a shopping cart or filming ridiculous pranks at the mall with embarrassing rickety attempts at the ollies that they'd never really be able to do. The once-authentic skater-owned, now $10 million company called World Industries would watch as posers flooded that same mall with their new skate shop chains like Zoomies, buying the latest in chunky skate shoes, and hoodies advertising brands that were growing more and more popular. It was killing the punk rock anarchy authenticity that the true skaters were dedicated to. By 2001, skating had become more popular with teenagers than baseball. Sponsored skater prank culture would pave the way for YouTube influencers like Logan and Jake Paul to become fantastically rich off of dangerous, offensive, brash, boys-will-be-boys behavior that still held the authentic, I-don't-give-a-fuck persona. Not unlike Steve Rocco and his gaggle of teenage skaters traveling lavishly across the country together, There are now mansions that house teenage TikTokers and YouTubers that are always stocked with camera people, managers, handlers, and unlimited cash as long as they create that constant content, building up the brands of themselves and each other. But before YouTube and before social media, This wild new yonder called the internet was providing places for all kinds of people to become extremely influential, but this time from the comfort of their own homes. No devastating injuries required. More after this. Schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com/slash AmericanHysteria50 and use code AmericanHysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com/slash AmericanHysteria 50. To get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now, back to the show. Happening alongside the rise of 90s skate culture was the growth of the early internet a lawless Wild West where a new brand of rowdy, classless cowboys put out shock content that many of us likely stumbled onto as tweens and teenagers. The worst of the worst of these sites was a place called Rotten.com, a website that trafficked in the goriest and most sexually explicit stuff they could find, as long as it wasn't flat out illegal. Much of what was posted on the site ended up being a hoax. Viral pranks about 9-11 and Columbine and Princess Diana's death, about animal abuse and baby eating. Provocations that would put Rotten.com at the center of the first battle over internet censorship. For those in favor of regulating what could and could not be posted online, and especially what should and should not be accessible by children, this site was a ghoulish nightmare that proved all their worst fears about the World Wide Web. But for those who were against government censorship of any kind, Rotten.com was a beacon of free speech that had to be protected at all costs. This excerpt will help us get acquainted with the nihilistic spirit of the 1990s, the glee found by the controversial young men who ruled the early internet with an incredibly clammy iron fist. Those who held up a careless, sometimes cruel spirit as a kind of political revolt. Please enjoy this section from our episode called Rotten.com. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, when internet access was still new to most Americans, one site in particular haunted the edges of the world-wide web like a hideous, poisonous spider. It was a collection of extremely gruesome and sexually explicit images, many of which became dark memes spread by the turn of the millennium's more nihilistic teens and young adults. While making this episode, I mentioned the site to a handful of friends all of whom remembered it, both faint memories of the site's many rumors and vivid memories of the site's many horrors. This shock site was the stuff of legend back at a time when the internet was a lot smaller, When there were specific sites that everyone went to, like Newgrounds and E-Bombs World, that gave all of us the same innocent memes and flash videos, our salad fingers, our angry kids, our home star runners, our hamster dances. The now defunct homepage of Rotten.com is still accessible on the Wayback Machine, And it features an eerie skeleton creature with the words, When hell is full, the dead will walk the earth. Pure evil since 1996. With the description, The soft white underbelly of the net, eviscerated for all to see. A truly unpleasant experience. Salon magazine put it this way back in 2001: "Quote, if it involves bizarre sex, gruesome death, or the sordid side of celebrity, you will find it on this site." For the sake of all that is holy, I am not going to share many specifics in this episode. That's on you, whether or not you want to further your own research. But Rotten.com was more than just a shock site. In fact, it was once considered a serious bastion of free speech back in the days when the battle over internet censorship was focused less on hate speech and misinformation and more on pornography and gore. But these standoffs involved not just censorship by private companies as we see today, but by the actual federal government. Who would meet their match in a new generation in which not giving a fuck was all the rage? By that time, about 200,000 visitors were going to Rotten.com every day, and the site was becoming a kind of shorthand for parents' concern around what their kids could find on the World Wide Web with no laws gatekeeping its content. Since the late 50s, the internet had been a boring piece of government and educational technology. And it wasn't until 1992 that the gates were open to the public and to commercial interests. And there was no legal infrastructure in place to regulate this sudden new form of popular media. In 1996, the first censorship legislation was signed by the Clinton administration, called the Communications Decency Act. We know the information age will bring blessings for our people and
1: our country. But like most human blessings, we know the blessings will be mixed. Children sometimes are exposed to images parents don't want them to see because they shouldn't.
0: The state's rationale was that speech on the radio and on TV had long been regulated by government oversight, with even mild swear words cordoned away to certain hours when minors were least likely to be caught in the corrupting influence. The law was based around preventing children from gaining access to explicit content by making it a criminal offense to send Obscene or indecent messages to anyone under age, as well as knowingly displaying content deemed patently offensive that could be accessed by those under 18. In legal terms, these categories are confusing with obscenity being speech that does not receive federal protection under the First Amendment. What contemporary community standards would judge the real bad stuff? Indecent material is content generally considered inappropriate by the same community standards, but less bad, still given First Amendment protection, especially when it has literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. But obviously, both categories could be very up for interpretation depending on your own value system. The law would also make companies responsible for adding age verification mechanisms for all adult content, meaning they would have to figure out ways to screen everything or face criminal charges. It also meant that a person couldn't post this kind of content in any public forum, including message boards and chat rooms. Civil liberties groups immediately got to work organizing mass protests online and sounding the alarm that this law could be interpreted in ways that could be dangerous to individual rights and the free exchange of information. Ultimately, it worked, and the courts, citing free speech, kept the part about obscenity but struck down the part about indecency, agreeing that it was too broad and too ill-defined. The 1998 Child Online Protection Act was the next attempt to censor the Internet, designating that any website which hosted material deemed harmful to minors had to be restricted from people under 18. Rotten.com made its Senate floor debut when internet safety activist Donna Rice-Hughes used it as her main example of the, quote, violent and bloody horrors that kids could easily access online. Yet again, the act was seen as too broad and was struck down by the courts in the name of free speech and against government overreach. For many early champions of an uncensored internet, this was what the fight first looked like. And to them, it felt heroic, sticking it to the same adults who had been seizing their satanic heavy metal CDs, censoring the lyrics to their favorite explicit songs, and just generally moral panicking all over their favorite countercultural pastimes. The early World Wide Web was a kind of Wild West, a folk battle to try to wrest the internet away from the long arm of the law. It's important to remember that the internet rose to popular usage during the jackass era, the days of punk and skate culture going mainstream, an era of screaming apathy, a contest to see who could care less, whether it was about what happens to their body as they throw themselves into potentially deadly juvenile stunts, or about offending their fellow citizens with shocking sex and twisted gore. We can see that from the start, the anti-censorship movement has been antagonistic, trolly, pranky, a game to see what one could get away with in a country where government overreach has always been a primary concern in American culture. But the fight's a little different now, because unless the government itself is censoring the internet as it was trying to do back in the days of Rotten.com, it isn't a violation of freedom of speech. It's a choice by a corporation simply out to make the most money it can with as little controversy as possible. For better or worse, that's what freedom of the market looks like in action. Not only that, but what's considered indecent speech varies considerably from person to person and also from decade to decade and will continue to transform as the culture around it changes. But no matter what, there will always be transgressive provocateurs ready to test the boundaries, whether we like it or not. Posts on Rotten.com would slow considerably by 2008, and by 2012, the site was officially offline. But there were already plenty of shock sites ready to take its place, plenty of other aggressive transgressives ready to be the next Soylent. Now, for those of us who grew up with this version of the web— Rotten.com is but a whispered memory that many of us would like to forget. It exists now only as a pockmark on what Soylent once called the soft white underbelly of the net. Like a scar from an unnerving spider bite you got as a kid. When Jackass premiered in the year 2000, it seemed like no adult on Earth had ever heard of a prank before. Or at least, the pranks they had back in their day were akin to something like gluing a quarter to the sidewalk. But, to the credit of these moral guardians of America, the pranks produced on Jackass could get really screwed up, like my least favorite, where Johnny Knoxville rides a bike with a doll strapped into its baby seat, and then flips over the curb in front of horrified strangers, the fake infant hitting the ground, or even flying out of the seat completely. But to act like these exploits are somehow new to our culture is not at all accurate. Because, as we'll see, boys have been acting like assholes for laughs for at least two centuries in America. For evidence of this, we can look at the Halloween rituals that frightened communities throughout the 1800s and 1900s, and how adults attempted to correct this bad behavior by creating the haunted houses that we still walk through today, screaming and laughing our way through a safe space of moral transgression. Please enjoy this excerpt from our episode called Haunted Attractions. Halloween as we know it is a mashup of the Celtic Samhain and the Catholics All Saints Day. But the autumn time has always inspired universal themes of coming darkness and death. Departed spirits may be said to return, the veil between the living and the dead lifted, a time when demons can more easily steal souls, or souls more easily might be able to reach through to the living. When Halloween was introduced into America, as you might guess, the Puritans sent it straight back to hell. But by the mid-1800s, things started to look a little more familiar. Halloween started to take its modern form. As scores of immigrants from Ireland and Scotland entered the New World, the boys and young men brought with them a veritable treasure chest of Halloween pranks. The local American white boys were all too happy to join in, learning such classics as pulling up a turnip stalk, lighting it on fire to get it smokin', and then jamming it in the keyhole of a house to get it smellin' just terrible in there. And boys will be boys, so the pranks kept cranking up, each year worse than the last roving packs of delinquents would string ropes across sidewalks to trip pedestrians, coat chapel seats with molasses, tie doorknobs of opposing houses together, knock over everything they could find, including occupied outhouses, lead livestock onto barn roofs and just tear up a bunch of crops, smear paint all over houses, explode pipe bombs, and in their most jackassian move leave dummies on train tracks to scare conductors. By the early 1900s, these quaint rural pranks went into hyperdrive in crowded cities. Fire alarms were pulled, bricks were thrown through windows, curse words painted on houses, small fires were set that sometimes turned into big fires, and if you were dumb enough to be out on Halloween night, you could be jumped for treats. In Maryland in 1939, a little girl almost had to have her entire arm amputated because a boy hit her with a rock. In 1932, a man almost lost his eye when a teenager blasted him in the face with a rock. In 1929, an unhinged group of boys planted and then detonated dynamite on their high school campus. Several people were even killed by pranks that involved hiding dangerous objects on roadways. All of this malarkey was costing actual American lives and millions of American dollars in the middle of a Great Depression. Eventually, the adults had had enough, arming themselves with rifles, threatening death at the teenagers, and even firing shots at some of the rowdiest groups. From what it sounds like, it was basically the early 20th century version of The Purge, but real. And like The Purge, the mischief had been tolerated for that one night exclusively. With that, boys will be boys attitude. Uh, Just let them get it out of their system. But by 1942, as America entered the Second World War, the adults of this uncertain nation just could not tolerate this shit anymore. A Rochester, New York superintendent put it this way in a letter to the editor.
1: Letting the air out of tires isn't fun. It's sabotage. Soaping windows isn't fun this year. Your government needs soaps and greases for the war. Even ringing doorbells has lost its appeal because it may mean disturbing the sleep of a tired war worker who needs his rest.
0: The adults didn't care that Halloween was about more than these dumbass pranks from a bunch of dumbass boys, but it didn't matter. The war on Halloween had begun the Chicago City Council voted to ban the holiday outright and replace it with Conservation Day. But thankfully for the youth and for the generations to come, the mayor never followed through with the plan. By 1950, President Truman again addressed the issue, expressing his hope to turn Halloween into Youth Honor Day, an event with the goal of Instilling moral virtue in teenagers. But soon after, the Korean War eclipsed the Halloween controversy on the House of Representatives' list of important issues, and they tossed the motion aside. But as they do, local communities of suburban parents started to go totally rogue, towns across the nation seizing on the template for Truman's Saccharin Suckfest, Youth Honor Day. The Ocala, Florida chapter of the Moose Lodge threw a big old youth honor party, complete with a crown-clad king and queen of youth honor and a parade to honor their honor. I'm sure some of the buttoned up squares felt relief in the bland brown halls of the Elks Lodge, but many other teenagers were not about to trade their devilish night of freedom for this. The parents, administrators, and local politicians all knew that Youth Honor Day just wasn't working. But they also felt like they were onto something here. Yes, a distraction. Hmm. Yes, a way to convince the kids that they're doing something exciting, something, hmm, transgressive, while still keeping them off the streets. Because banning Halloween, that would just make it more attractive. No, 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 give them what they want without giving them what they want. And so, with that scheme in mind, neighborhoods began decorating their basements in different spooky themes, every house on the block. And so kids and teens could haunted house hop their way to a bag full of treats. No tricks necessary. An instructional party pamphlet taught adults how to create a frightening but cheap haunted living room. Hang old fur, strips of raw liver on walls, where one feels his way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners, and damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling and touch his face. A guard dressed as a dog suddenly jumps out at him, barking and growling. Slowly the popularity of pranks did begin to die out, replaced by a much tamer and far more parent-sanctioned evening with far less property damage. But Halloween cannot be contained by those unenchanted by its spirit, and so the Haunted House attraction
1: took on a life of its own. More After this. And
0: now, back to the show. Not only will we be looking at the rude boys of the 1990s, but we'll also be taking a look at the craze that formed around a motorcycle stuntman named. Evil Knievel, who rose to fame in the 1970s because he was willing to fling himself towards certain death again and again, as long as he could get the footage he wanted. This was Johnny Knoxville's philosophy as well, likely because this daredevil was his childhood hero and the greatest inspiration for his future unorthodox career. Also occurring the same year that Evil made his famous Snake River Canyon jump, where he was shot in an actual rocket across a gorge, was a massive craze that saw scores of young men streaking naked across college campuses and through their college towns creating chaos along the way, not unlike Jackass would with their own gratuitous nudity a quarter century later. Next week, we'll look at what the 1970s and 1990s had in common to try to find the reason that they both produced such similarly stupid and dangerous forms of unstable masculinity. Now here's an excerpt from our episode called The Streaking Craze. Let's take a look at one of the most explosive moments in the streaking craze of 1974, when the battle for the naked run record got way out of control. On March 6th, the University of Georgia broke the standing record with a group of 1,500 streakers all taking to the street at the same time. Well, let me tell you, that put a bee in the bonnet, likely the only clothing they would later be wearing, of the University of Delaware population. The very next day, on the warm weeknight of March 7th, there was a palpable, primal electricity in the Newark air as a plan was forming through a network of whispers and triple dog dares, with seasoned streakers calling out all the chickens who were still refusing to join their university's naked war effort to secure the national record. The message that was telephoning across campus said that these mysterious instigators were gathering a crowd even bigger than Georgia's and that they would be running from East Campus down Main Street past the most popular college bar in town, the Deer Park Tavern, where the less daring would wait to receive their unadorned royalty just before midnight. Because it was one of those charged evenings where everyone knew something unusually epic was coming, the students at the tavern started drinking earlier than usual and also more than usual. And by nightfall, things started to take on a darker tone. You know the one. Around 10.30 p.m., the bar crowd was growing rapidly, with 300 students trying to push into the entrance, spilling out onto the sidewalk and into the road. Those that made it inside began loudly demanding drinks, grabbing bottles from behind the bar, and completely overwhelming the staff. At this point, Everyone was completely shit-wrecked, and that's when witnesses said students started smashing bottles. Back at the East Campus lawn, where the streak was set to begin, the crowd had swelled to more than a thousand. Weekly Post writer Jeff Crossman observed, quote, "...by this time, the scene bordered on surrealism." Male students carried female partners, double-decker on their shoulders for a better view. The few small trees dotting the lawn were decorated in their uppermost branches with student lookouts. As the scene back at the Deer Park Tavern grew more violent, the owner screamed at the students to leave his property at once, and along with his staff, they were able to push them out and lock the door. At that point, the police were aware of what was going on, and they called to demand that the local liquor store close and lock its doors immediately. But someone in the know led a breakaway group to the storage building where Deer Park kept all their surplus liquor. They smashed in the door and arrived back at the crowd carrying this dangerous bounty in their arms like privileged pillaging pirates. It was about the same time that 1,500 streakers jogged past the Deer Park Tavern, received with hundreds of slurred screams and stumbled exultations. As the two groups merged and formed one huge and feral crowd, students skipped and chanted up Main Street in an unsanctioned parade street party, possessed by the timeless spirit of Dionysian transgression with naked men and women dancing on the rooftops of restaurants dangling from street lamps and roaring with reckless abandon. A large group of students had stuck around the east campus lawn where the record-breaking streak began But when they got word of the crazy shit that was going down on Main Street, they too headed down to meet them, growing the mob to 4,000 people, many of whom were still totally naked except for their running shoes. It wasn't until this point in the night that two measly cop cars rolled up the street toward the chaos, and that's when a hush came over the thousands of rowdy students. From somewhere in the crowd, a single beer bottle sailed above them and then shattered on the window of a police cruiser. And then the darkly drunk crowd descended upon them, smashing the patrol car windshield with rocks and throwing handfuls of gravel at the faces of the cops. After they called for backup, the students were met with 150 county and state police, with the chief yelling into the PA that everyone better disperse. Those that didn't disperse responded with even more bottles and then bricks, and the authorities answered back with 30 canisters of tear gas. Even more police had to be bussed in from other local departments, and finally, 230 of them were able to quell the riot, sending the students back to their dorms to sleep it off. In the end, Ten police officers would be hospitalized and four police cars damaged, including one where the roof was smashed in. One eyewitness said that as he looked out over downtown the next morning, it, quote, looked like a war zone. Another witness recalled that what would come to be known as the Deer Park Riot was a traumatic event. For Newark. Thank you so much for listening to this installment of Context Clues. We're looking forward to seeing you next week for our episode on Jackass. May God have mercy on all of our souls. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria for ad-free early episodes, as well as access to our talk show called Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I tell you all the stories from the cutting room floor of each topic. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. Another great way you can support our show is to leave us a five-star review on whatever app you use. It doesn't take very long, and it really helps us out. This episode is written and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and was produced by Riley Swadelius smith Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great day.